It's sobering to realize that some of Jesus' most sobering warnings were aimed at those who were considered to be the most religious. To appear to be living a holy life in the eyes of men is not the same thing as living a truly holy life before God. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at our website, Radical. In this message from Matthew chapter 23, David Platt urges us to heed Jesus' warnings to the religious leaders of his day. Rather than living lives marked by hypocrisy, pride, and self-centeredness, God wants his people to live lives marked by a supreme love for him and a selfless love for others. Here's David with a sermon titled, The Danger of Damnation in Sincere Religion, from Matthew chapter 23. If you have his word and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 23. Um, I invite you to pull out those notes that you received in the worship guide when you came in. Matthew chapter 23. It is good to be back from the Horn of Africa So thank you for praying for me, the team I was with. It was a really, really good last couple of weeks. We spent time with our church planning team among the Arundo. So three Brook Hills members who are living there right now, focused on the Arundo people group with some others. But the Arundo people group, one of the most unreached, most dangerous to reach people groups in the world. We have another member who is serving nearby where we were, focused on another people group. So we spent time with all of them, including J.D. and J.J. You may remember that J.D. is the first church planner that we sent out about a year and a half ago. And J.D. and J.J. and their son are doing well. J.J. is actually pregnant with their second child. So be praying for them as they are multiplying disciples in that way. Then we spent time in Kenya with Vapor Sports Ministries, led by Micah McKelvey and a member of our faith family who, along with other members from our faith family, are doing absolutely incredible things among the poorest of the poor in the world through Vapor. So picture a slum filled with poverty and trash and waste and then see kids playing soccer or Football, as the rest of the world calls it. They're in the slum on a green field with coaches who are disciple makers extraordinaire. These brothers and sisters are leading kids, parents, students to Christ all over the place in these slums, using soccer merely as a means. It's just a tool for making disciples and then providing physical ministry to the poorest of the poor. So we we played football till we fell over. I ran up hills that Kenyan marathon runners train on. I could not keep up with them. We studied the word. We danced in worship. And just as a side note, and this has been wonderful with the choir and worshiping this morning, but when we get to heaven, I'm going to the Kenyan section. So <laughs> do not be offended, but I will leave you all behind and and I will be Kenyan on that day. So just dancing in worship, just celebrating God's grace in this incredible 
ministry, Vapor. And then we spent some time with Erica, Eric, and Amanda Hansen, two other Brook Hills members and their family who are serving in northern Kenya in a hospital there. Eric is a pediatric, pediatric surgeon. You may remember the Hansons. We highlighted them in our, during our global offering last December. Eric, pediatric surgeon who is doing what God has created him for in such a wonderful way, alongside his wife, Amanda, their four kids, working really hard, providing extensive medical care in this hospital that services the entire region of Central and East Africa, and doing it in particular with a focus on a very unreached, very dangerous people group. And so I just, I came back from these last two weeks just proud. I think proud in in a good way. Proud to be a part of a faith family with these brothers and sisters. Not proud in a way that I think I have anything to do with, well, or we, hopefully we, I, are encouraging these brothers and sisters, but just proud in the sense of seeing God's grace in brothers and sisters who have said, we're going to spend our lives and our families, no matter what it costs, for the spread of the gospel in a world of urgent spiritual and physical need. So be encouraged, church. Our brothers and sisters are doing well They are extensions of this body in some very difficult places in the world. They're leading people to Christ and raising up leaders in these places in the world, all bringing great glory to God. So my heart is full with joy. At the same time, my body is tired. So we flew back into Chicago late Friday night. Our flight was then canceled, so we rented a minivan and drove through the night from Chicago to Birmingham, got back mid-morning yesterday. My body has no idea what time it is at this moment. So I officially claim the right today to take back anything that I might say (laughs) that I might regret once I am more fully awake and fully aware. So that's just a right I'm claiming. Because this text is a tough text. So on one hand, my heart was full with joy On the other hand, my heart is heavy with conviction because I've been studying Matthew 23 all week. And it is one of the most serious passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. One writer said of Matthew 23, Jesus' words in this passage fly from his lips like claps of thunder and spears of lightning. Out of his mouth on this occasion come the most fearful and dreadful statements that Jesus ever uttered on the earth. In this text, Jesus is going to address scribes and Pharisees. He's going to call them hypocrites, children of hell, blind guides, fools, robbers, self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, snakes, vipers, persecutors, and murderers. So that's the tone of this text. And there's a couple of different ways we could approach it. We could read it and we could say, man, those scribes and Pharisees were horrible, evil. To evoke such wrath and condemnation from Christ, they were so clearly in the wrong. But this is where I want to remind you The scribes and the Pharisees were the most highly regarded religious leaders of their day. They were very well respected. They were devout. And they were not insincere. They were very sincere. They believed in what they were doing. And they believed that what they were doing was right and good. And so did everybody else. 
So here's the serious caution from this text that I want to start with, and I'll go ahead and warn you, this is a heavy statement right out of the gate. But I'm convinced based on this text that it's a true statement. I've thought about, poured over, been convicted by this statement all week long, and not just as it applies to scribes and Pharisees 2,000 years ago, but as it applies to you and me in this room today. So here it is. It is possible for you and me to genuinely believe that we are doing God's work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will, yet to be deceived and to experience eternal damnation. So there it is right out of the gate. (laughs) Damnation, the first blank. And that's what I believe this passage is all about. It's about people who genuinely believed they were doing God's work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will, yet they were deceived. And they experienced the most severe pronouncements of damnation ever mentioned by Christ in the scriptures. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, mentioned seven different times. Woe to you. Condemnation, damnation, judgment be upon you. And he said it to people who believed that what they were doing brought honor to God. That's frightening. But it's true. You think about it. This is at the foundation of major world religions all around the world. Muslims in the Horn of Africa, where I just was, believe that they are doing God's word, work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will. Yet they are deceived, and they will experience eternal damnation. Devout Jewish men and women all around the world today genuinely believe they are doing God's work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will. Yet they are deceived and they will experience eternal damnation. Man, have we just left political correctness behind in this sermon already or what? And it's not just Muslims or devout Jews or any other religion. It is possible for you and me to genuinely believe that we're doing God's work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will, you and me, yet for us to be deceived and for us to experience eternal damnation. There are all kinds of people in the world who under the banner of Christianity, claiming to be Christian, are deceived and being deceived. Whether it's Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses or Orthodox churches like I saw in the Horn of Africa, it's happening all over the world and we would be fools to think it would not happen with us could not happen with us. That we can't be deceived in the same way. So as we read this text, I don't want us to read it as if it's about a couple of groups of people that Jesus was speaking to 2,000 years ago. And we think, man, they missed it. I want us to consider these words and ask the question, where are we missing it? Where are we missing the point? Where are you and I deceived. So I've, I've got in your notes a series of questions that I'm convinced we all need to ask ourselves in light of this text as individuals and as a church based on what Jesus said to and about these scribes and Pharisees. So I want us to ask these questions very seriously, very honestly. These are the kind of questions when we ask them, pride in us wells up. We say, well, of course, that's not me. But I want us to ask, really, 
is this me? I know, having been immersed in this text and these questions this week, the more I seriously and honestly ask them, the more things keep coming to the surface that I don't want to see in my life. Just heavy with conviction. I got into my office this morning. I received an encouraging note from a brother in the church. It was so appropriate in ways, there's no way he could have even realized. But in his note, he shared this quote. The quote was, we should pursue profound honesty before God, for he knows everything. We need to admit our inner spiritual sins, even the really bad sins, and ask for his help. We must reject worldly rationalizing and moralizing, for in these ways, the sickness and impotence of the church is perpetuated. Furthermore, we need to pray specifically and honestly for deliverance and grace. So, my prayer this morning is that God might expose our blind spots, that he would expose areas in our lives and our faith and our church that we don't see that need correcting. That he would expose these things in the next few moments, that God might uncover our hearts, that God would help us to see everything that is here honestly. Ultimately, that God would save us from ourselves, that God would save us from our tendency to be sincere in religion, yet miss the point altogether, because that is a dangerous temptation for every single one of us in this room and for this church. So let's, let's pray toward, toward that end, then we'll dive in. Let's pray. Father, we pray today that you would take these words from the mouth of Jesus and apply them to our hearts in this room. We don't want to miss the point. And we confess from the very beginning, we acknowledge that we are prone to deceive and to be deceived. We acknowledge, we know, we live in a world that is full of sincere religion that ultimately leads to eternal damnation. So I help us, we pray. Help us to hear your word clearly in the next few moments. Help us to evaluate our lives honestly so that we might not experience the condemnation we do deserve, but so that we might experience the comfort, the consolation that we do not deserve in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, key questions that we must ask in our lives and in the church. And later I want to apply this particularly to leaders in the church but all based on what Jesus said to and about scribes and Pharisees in this text. We'll walk through them kind of step by step. So let's start in verse one. Matthew 23, verse one. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. We'll pause there. Question number one. Do we practice what we preach? Do we practice what we preach? In a statement of pure irony, 
Jesus says that these scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, with Moses' authority, the authority to teach God's word. So practice and observe what they tell you. But we know that Jesus is not saying to do whatever these guys say. Throughout Matthew, he's confronted these same religious leaders about false teaching. So Jesus is not saying just do whatever they tell you, but rather when these men teach the word of God rightly as Moses did, you should observe what they say, but not what they do, for they preach, but they don't practice. So don't follow their example. These are guys who put heavy burdens on others, telling them to do this and this and that, but they aren't willing to carry any of those burdens themselves. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites, hypocrites throughout the rest of the chapter. They don't practice what they preach. Now, obviously, no one is perfect. No one is completely holy. I don't, I don't presume to carry out perfectly everything that I call us as a church to do. But this is a question I must ask, and you and I must ask together. Do we practice what we proclaim? Is there consistency between what you say and how you live? So, general example. We say, we sing, Christ is the Savior. We say that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God, that apart from Jesus, people will spend eternity in hell. But do we live this week? Do we live this last week? Like we believe that. Do we live in urgency to tell people that? With billions of people engrossed in false religions around the world, many of them unreached with the gospel. Is there a consistency between what we're singing and saying and how we live? Then broaden it. Just in your profession, in your home, on your campus, as a parent, as a spouse, in your friendships? Is there a consistency between what you say and how you live? Leaders in this body, particularly those who teach the word, whether you're an elder or a small group leader, is there anything that you are calling others to that you are not committing your own life to? I urge you to consider, where is there inconsistency between what you say and how you live? Do we practice what we preach? Second question, based on verses five through seven. Start in verse five. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Second question, are we content with the approval of God or do we desire the applause of men? Are we content with the approval of God or do we desire the applause of men? It's the same thing we saw Jesus address in the Sermon on the Mount when he called out men and women for fasting and praying and giving in order to be seen by men. Here it's scribes and Pharisees who want to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad. These are small boxes inscribed with texts from God's law that were worn either on someone's arms or fastened on their foreheads. Or fringes it talks about. Basically tassels that were worn on the outside of your clothes. 
These were things that were prescribed in places like Exodus 13, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11. And the whole point was to draw attention to God and to God's word. But the scribes and Pharisees were using these things to draw attention to themselves. And so we see in them a tendency we see in us. That's why I phrased this question the way I did. Are we content with the approval of God or do we desire the applause of men? It is a deadly thing to desire the applause of men. For once you begin to receive it, your flesh begins to enjoy it. And you want it more and more and more. And you become less and less and less content with the gracious approval of God. So are you content to enjoy God's smile that shines upon you by his grace to the point at which you are dead to what men say to or about you? Let's pray for this in our lives and in each other's lives. I ask that you pray for this for me over the last couple of years especially, particularly in light of that little orange book. Many people have encouraged me in various ways. Others have not so encouraged me, but some have encouraged me. But it's all evidence of the grace of God, yet the applause of man, I've seen it, the applause of man has a way of poisoning the soul. And I want to be a man who lives for nothing more than the gracious approval of God. Third question, do we assert our superiority over others and in the process usurp Christ's superiority over all? Do we assert our superiority over others? So Jesus ends verse 7 by talking about the delight the scribes and the Pharisees take in being called rabbi by others. And then he says in verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now we know that what Jesus is saying here is not that there should be no teachers, no leaders in the church. All throughout the New Testament, God sets up, for example, elders to teach and lead in the church. Paul calls himself a spiritual father to Timothy, his dear son in the faith. Even later in this passage, Jesus talks about how he sends New Testament prophets and scribes and wise men, basically as missionaries. So this is not a total blanket denouncement of any spiritual leadership among God's people, but it is a clear rebuke to those who use their leadership position to assert some sort of superiority above others to the point where they usurp or subvert Christ's superiority overall. That's exactly what these scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were calling themselves rabbis, teachers, spiritual fathers, instructors. And in doing that, they were drawing people to themselves and away from Christ. And Jesus reprimands this. So, does your heart delight in receiving honor over other people? Do you find some weird sort of comfort whenever you realize or acknowledge that you are in a better or even higher position than someone else? Are you prone to, even if it's just in your mind, exalt yourself above others? Do you ever find yourself comparing yourself with other people even subconsciously measuring yourself against them to determine your own level of spirituality. This is what C.S. Lewis talked about so 
clearly in a powerful chapter on pride and mere Christianity. He calls pride or self-conceit the great sin. Lewis said, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. He said, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And then I want you to hear how he links pride with competition. I remember the first time I read this, I was just underlining every single line. He says, now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by, by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having it more than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or clever or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Do you find unusual pleasure in being above the rest? Or even unusual discouragement in being below the rest? It cuts both ways here. If I'm doing better than the person next to me, I feel good about myself spiritually. If I'm doing worse than the person next to me, I feel bad about myself spiritually. We are naturally prone to compete with one another, to measure ourselves against one another. And the whole point here is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, equal before God in Christ. And Jesus alone is superior. So God help us to live and to lead and to relate to one another in ways that affirm equality as brothers and sisters with Christ alone as superior above all. Which leads right into the next question. Do we humbly serve others or are we hypocritically centered on ourselves? Do we humbly serve others or are we hypocritically centered on ourselves? Verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So we've seen this picture of humility now all over the book of Matthew. Jesus going against the grain of every natural worldly leadership principle. And he makes clear, God humbles the self-exalted. God exalts the self-humbled. Expressed most clearly in the way you serve others. So, are you constantly, consistently looking for ways, opportunities to serve others? Or is your more consistent thought, what would be best for me in this situation? Even sometimes in serving, are you still thinking, is this good for me? Would people around you say that humble service is your posture? Would your wife say that? Would your husband say that? Would your children say that? Would your parents say that? Would your employer say that humble service is your posture? Would the people around you in the church say that? Are you a servant? Do you humbly serve others or are you hypocritically centered on yourself? Now that question then leads us into the first of seven woes that Jesus pronounces upon the Pharisees. Jesus moves from talking about them to talking to them. 
And people have taken these woes and grouped them in all kinds of different ways. What I've done is I've taken the first six woes and grouped them into three pairs that seem to overlap with one another with individual questions in the middle of them. They'll all lead to the seventh woe, which seems to be the final hammer that Christ brings down here. So let's start with the first two woes in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What a statement. So let's ask ourselves this question. Are we hindering people's salvation? That's the whole point of what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. And don't miss it. They were sincere in doing it. They traveled across sea and land to make a single proselyte. These guys literally believed, really believed in what they were doing. They believed the message they were spreading was right. They were giving their lives to making it known to everybody they could. But in the process, they were hindering people's salvation. They were keeping people from the kingdom of heaven. So can that same thing be true in us? Yes, absolutely it can. It is possible to be sincere in the spread of a message and miss the whole point altogether. So we need to ask, are we hindering people's salvation either through deceiving potential disciples of Jesus? In their blindness to Jesus as the Messiah, they were keeping others from seeing Jesus as the Messiah. And they thought that what they were doing was right. So realize this. False teachers abound in Christianity throughout the New Testament, throughout church history. And some of them have had malicious motives in doing so, but others of them have had good motives in doing so. Yet they deceive nonetheless. So being in Africa these last couple of weeks, humbling. Because there are prominent teachers in what's called the church here in America who are all over Africa spreading gospel-less teaching and gospel-less thoughts. One of them led a, recently a huge campaign here in Birmingham. And the message that's being taught there is trust in Jesus and things will go well for you. You will have a better life. You will have health and wealth and prosperity and success in this world. And people in the slums of Africa are eating it up. But it's not the gospel. I talked with one Arundo woman in this people group who's come to faith in Christ and her decision to follow Christ could very possibly, very easily lead to her having her throat slit. Yet she has turned from herself and her sin and all that she's grown up in and trusted in Christ because she believes he's worth it. That is the gospel. To follow Christ, to enter into the kingdom of heaven costs you everything you have in this world and to preach anything less than that is to preach a false gospel. Which is why we must clearly, boldly, passionately, even uncomfortably confront false teaching and easy believism in all of its forms, no matter how sincerely it's being communicated. Brothers and sisters, the supposed church is full of teachers, men and women, who, who are minimizing the character of God, his holiness and his righteousness and his wrath, who are diluting the sinfulness of man, hardly even talking about it, who are trivializing the sacrifice of Christ as merely one option for salvation, 
Teachers who are calling people to give quick intellectual assent to Jesus by raising a hand and praying a prayer without counting the cost of what it means to follow him. Other teachers who flat out deny or at least skirt around the doctrine of eternal hell. It's all deceptive, dangerous, and ultimately damning. We must not hinder people from entering the kingdom of heaven by deceiving potential disciples, giving them less than the gospel of the kingdom, even with good motives in doing so. So are we hindering people's salvation? by deceiving potential disciples, or through creating virtual disciples of ourselves. These guys were not only preventing disciples of Jesus, they were creating disciples of themselves, leading other people down this pharisaic, legalistic road of self-exaltation, which just snowballed into others receiving even further condemnation, twice as much a child of hell than the first. So God help us. God help me. God help you. Help us never to create disciples of ourselves who follow us for following The thoughts of man and following the teachings of men will always lead down a road of condemnation. Only Christ can draw people into the kingdom of heaven. So let's constantly, let's consistently point people to him, call people to him. So are you and I, are we, we need to ask, are we sharing the biblical gospel with people around us and pointing people to Christ as king? Or are we hindering people's salvation through subtle deception and delusion of the gospel, or through spreading our own ideas, or or even are we hindering people's salvation by merely being silent about our Savior? Next two woes, verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, I really struggle with how to phrase this next question based on these two woes. But I, because I think the question I'm about to put here before you is the essence of what Jesus is saying, but it's open to misunderstanding. So follow with me closely on this one. Next question. Are we more concerned with biblical minutia than we are with practical ministry? Are we more concerned with biblical minutia than we are with practical ministry? Meaning, are we more concerned with little things that are important? So I don't want biblical minutia to sound like there's anything unimportant in the Bible because it's all important. But there's weightier things, Jesus says here. There's weightier things and there's a tendency we have to focus on lighter things and ignore heavier things particularly in the second part here, but let's unpack the first part. Do we justify sin according to our traditions 
or do we flee sin according to God's truth? So this is a dialogue that happens in verse 16 through 22. Third woe. Do we justify sin according to our traditions or do we flee sin according to God's truth? This is a huge question. This whole conversation about swearing by the temple or the gold or the altar or the gift, basically, they had created traditions that said, well, if you only swear by this, then you're not bound to what you said. But if you swear by this, then you are bound to what you said. And so it was common. It was their practice to hold people responsible for things they said when they were swearing by this, but not when they were swearing by that. And Jesus says, no, God is true. Whenever you speak, you swear to something, make an oath, speak a promise, you are accountable to God. And so they had justified sin according to traditions they'd set up instead of fleeing sin according to truth God had given. So do you and I do the same thing? Are there things in our lives that are sin that we think, yeah, I guess technically it's sin, but everyone kind of does it. It seems pretty common, doesn't seem like a big deal, so it's okay. Are there sins that are common to us that we become casual with and we justify? Like gossip, gluttony, overeating, small white lies, materialism, the indulgence in more and more and nicer, bigger. We adjust to sin because it's common to us instead of running from sin because it's repulsive to God. Pick and choose. Which then leads to probably what is the most convicting question of all for me, and they've all been convicting. But especially after my last two weeks in the Horn of Africa, do we pride ourselves on following convenient laws or do we spend ourselves expressing costly love? Do we pride ourselves on following convenient laws or do we spend ourselves expressing costly love? So Jesus mentions the law of the tithe in verse 23. And he talks about these scrupulous, careful ways. The scribes and Pharisees were wanting to obey that law, but they were ignoring, showing justice and mercy and faithfulness. Clear allusion here to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where God calls his people to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God, to express his mercy and kindness to the poor and the needy, to walk humbly with God in a way that overflows in the humble service of the people around you, particularly those who are in need. So we've talked about this before. We live in a world where nearly half of the population lives on less than $2 a day. And approximately a billion people today live in desperate poverty. Desperate poverty. And I was with them this last week to walk among and alongside brothers and sisters in a slum that serves as a city dump where men and women and three-year-old children are mining through other people's trash, food and supplies to sustain themselves. The stench alone is unforgettable as you walk through and watch where you step to avoid sewage and waste. It's just flowing through a community filled with tin shacks where people will live with nothing, on nothing. So, it doesn't make sense 
It just doesn't make sense for me to spend my life, for us to spend our lives in this church, priding ourselves on obeying convenient laws that are easy for us to do, or debating minute truths that are important but easy for us to get hung up on when there is such massive need to show justice and mercy and faithfulness from God in Birmingham and around the world. It's not, again, it's not that convenient laws like tithing here are unimportant. They're important, Jesus says, but even weightier is the need to express the mercy, love and faithfulness and justice of God to the poor and the needy. And that is costly. So are we willing to go out of our comfort zones, to make sacrifices in our lives and in the church, to get our hands dirty in practical ministry that is hard for us and costly to us? Or are we content to spend our lives mining through biblical details week after week, looking for that which is relatively easy for us to do? That's a huge question. And it points us to true religion. This is exactly what James, as we've studied before, talks about. Last question based on this last pair of woes in verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, last question here. Are we focused on outward cleanliness instead of inward holiness? It's what we've seen all throughout the book of Matthew, isn't it? The tendency scribes, Pharisees, others, to observe religious rules, religious regulations, principles, practices on the outside while neglecting humility and purity on the inside. And Jesus reminds us in this fierce denunciation, purity always begins in the heart. You don't clean the outside of a cup. You clean the inside. The outside will become clean. When all you do is focus on the outside, when your religion is all about external improvement, you become like a whitewashed tomb. Oh, hear this. Religion is a subtly dangerous cover-up for spiritual deadness. Religion, even what we are practicing in this room, can be a subtly dangerous cover-up for spiritual deadness. Do we see this in our lives? So we go to church, we attend small group, we read the Bible, we walk through the motions, we check off the boxes, but if we are not careful, we will miss the entire point. In all of our efforts at moral renewal, trying to be better, even better Christian people, we end up covering up the sin that lies at the core of who we are. Religion is a subtly dangerous cover-up for spiritual deadness. So we need to ask ourselves, is there life in us? And really, is there life? Is there inner transformation that is happening within us? Are our hearts being changed so that we desire Christ more than we desire the things of this world? Is there love? Is there affection for Christ at the root of our obedience? Is Christianity a matter of duty for you? Or is it a matter of delight 
for you. This holiness being joyfully cultivated in your heart. And the answer to all of those questions was a clear no among the scribes and Pharisees. So it set the stage for this final charge, the seventh woe that Jesus pronounced upon them, which is basically the hammer coming down fully and finally. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So follow this here. They would take the tombs of prophets who had gone before them, prophets who we've read about in the Old Testament, who were stoned or sawed in half, who were persecuted and reviled, and they would erect Scribes and Pharisees would erect monuments to these prophets as if to say, we would have never done what our forefathers did. We'd have never persecuted, sawed them in half, stoned them. And Jesus looks at them and says, you absolutely would have done everything they did because your heart is the same as theirs. And he makes clear that in essence, they had murdered God's messengers in the Old Testament. They were sons of murderers, and they would show this, Jesus says, in the days ahead. They had not only murdered God's messengers in the past, but they would then murder Christian missionaries in the future. Jesus says, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you'll crucify, others you'll flog, some you'll persecute, some you'll murder. It's exactly what we see unfold in the lives of disciples, missionaries for Christ who spread the gospel in the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts, Jewish religious leaders are on the heels of Christians who are preaching the gospel. Acts 13, Pisidian Antioch. Acts 14 in Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica. Acts 17 at Thessalonica and Berea. Acts 18 and 20 at Corinth. Acts 20 to 23 at Jerusalem. And then, here in Matthew 23, Jesus gives this climactic overview of how from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, basically the first person sinfully murdered in the Old Testament to the last person murdered in the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament scriptures. Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20 through 22 recounts the stoning of Zechariah the priest. And the picture is clear. There was blood on their hands from all this that had happened in the past. And there would be blood on their hands for what they would do in the future. But the picture is Ultimately, there was blood on their hands for what was about to happen in the presence. Because in the present, because just days after Jesus said this, they were about to murder the promised Messiah. And this generation was bringing to culmination the opposition of God's people to God and his word. In a matter of days, these leaders would incite the crowds to cry out for the crucifixion of the Messiah. And then when you get to Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, they say, his blood be on us and on our children. 
That's why verse 32 is so important. Fill up then the measure of your father's. They were filling up the measure, full measure of their father's sin, and God would tolerate it no more. Now, we've seen this in Scripture before. When we read through the, through the story of Scripture, they remember Genesis chapter 15. God said about the Amorites, he said he was going to delay his wrath 400 years. For four generations, he was going to de- delay his wrath until the sins of the Amorites was complete. And once it was filled up to the fullness of his measure, then God would bring his wrath down on them. It's a picture we see at other points in the Old Testament applied to different nations in their sin. As God waits to the fullness of the measure of their sin against them is there and pours out his wrath. But never before now was that picture ever applied to the people of Israel. And here it is. Woe, condemnation, judgment, damnation be upon those who murder the Messiah. But it's, it's not just them. So I hope we've seen in these various questions, we've asked of ourselves that the scribes and Pharisees in this text are not as foreign to us, are not as foreign to our hearts as we would like for them to be. So when you come to the climax of this condemnation, this denouncement of the scribes and Pharisees, the crowds who would murder the Messiah, we come face to face with a very frightening conclusion. Ladies and gentlemen, we are them. We are them. We in this room have hearts that would murder the Messiah. And to think anything different is to flatter ourselves in the same way these scribes and Pharisees did. The old Negro spiritual asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the answer is, yes, absolutely we were there. And we were there not as spectators, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining and handing him over to be crucified. John Stott said, until you see the cross as that which is done by you, you will never appreciate that it is done for you. The great Scottish hymn writer, Horatius Bonner, wrote, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. We have all rebelled against God. We have all turned from him. And from his word, supremely revealed in his one and only son. And no matter how sincere we are, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, our hearts warrant the woes, the wrath, the condemnation of God. And so these last verses we're about to read have particular special application to the people of Israel, but they also have clear application to us. Verse 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So don't miss it. Inevitable certainty for them and inevitable certainty for us. The condemnation of sinners is imminent. It was for the people of Jerusalem. The audience now broadens, not just the scribes and Pharisees, but the people who followed them. They would experience the wrath of God. This temple, this house in Jerusalem would be utterly desolated within a matter of years after this. They would experience divine judgment. And ladies and gentlemen, though we are not in the same place, we're in a different scene in a different time, the truth is still the same. The condemnation of sinners is imminent in this room. Every single man and woman in this room, without exception, will stand before God, accountable before, for your sin, deserving his wrath. Condemnation of sinners in this room is imminent. But, good news, the salvation of sinners is possible. Jesus says, I've longed, my people, to gather you under my wings to give you rest and protection and salvation, but they would not come to him. So come to him. Do not resist him. Salvation is possible for everyone who comes to him. Condemnation of sinners, imminent. Salvation of sinners, possible. And the exaltation of Jesus, guaranteed. Jesus will come back as the reigning Lord, and every knee will bow, and every voice will cry, blessed. The question is, when Jesus returns, will you see him coming as the consuming judge or as a welcomed king? So how do we respond to this text then? In light of everything we've seen so much, how do we respond? I want to take away here. There's two groups of people I want to apply this text in particular to. First, to leaders in this church, particularly elders, pastors. As you know, earlier we affirmed, just a moment, we will pray for six new pastors, elders in our faith family. They'll join 25 others who are serving in this capacity right now. And this passage is a particularly stern warning and caution to spiritual leaders, elders, pastors in the church. These new brothers coming in, brothers who have been, will continue to serve in this capacity. Notice in the Bible, all throughout Old Testament, New Testament, particularly in the ministry of Jesus, that the most stern warnings and the most furious wrath is reserved for those who claim to be God's servant, who, servants, who are in positions of leadership among God's people, but who deceive and lead people away from God's glory. So elders, including myself, pastors, let us be particularly cautioned and challenged this morning. Among our elders, let us lead with integrity from God's word as the only source of authority for what we believe and how we behave. Oh God, may there not be hypocrisy among us. May God's word be clear from our lips and may God's word be clear in our lives. May we never be guided by our traditions, but always be guided by his truth. May this word be the compass around which everything in our lives and everything in this church revolves. And let us lead by submission to God's son as our chief shepherd and the coming king. So that's phrased very intentionally. Leadership in the kingdom involves submission to the king. Submit to Christ. He's our chief shepherd. He's our teacher. He's our instructor. This is his church, not ours. 
And he's our coming king to whom we will give an account for how we shepherd this body. So let us love Christ and lead his church and be ready for the day when he returns to claim his people fully and finally. So church, pray for these things among pastors and elders. Pray for these things in my life and these brothers' lives. And then in all of our lives, three particular takeaways from this text. One, first and foremost, more important than anything else, let us humbly hide under the shelter of Christ's mercy. We need the mercy of Christ, and this is the one thing that the scribes and Pharisees miss the most, so don't miss it. This is the key distinctive between true religion that brings glory to God from sincere religion that warrants wrath from God. The key distinctive is, are you hiding under the wings of the mercy of Christ? And so I ask every person in this room, whether you are an active religious church member or whether this is your first time in a church setting, are you hiding under the wings of Christ's mercy? Turn from yourself, sin, religious self-effort, worldly self-centeredness. Run under the wings of the mercy of God in Christ. Jesus has paid the penalty. He has taken the woe and the wrath that you and I deserve on a cross. He has risen from the grave in victory over sin and death so that all who hunger hide under the wings of his mercy will be reconciled to God forever and ever and ever. Humbly hide under the shelter of Christ's mercy. And then, Christian, once you do, just live there. Stay there. Every day, every moment, Humbly hide under the shelter, under the wings of Christ's mercy. Second, let us then walk, wise, wisely walk and surrender to Christ's authority. So what, how do we live this out then? How do we avoid the trap of sincere religion that misses the point altogether? Two things that are most important. One, by understanding his word rightly. At the center of all of these woes is a wrong understanding of the scriptures, a misguided use of the scriptures and these scribes and Pharisees a fundamental failure in them to discern what God's word means. This is so key. God has not left us alone to try to figure out how to honor him, how to obey him, how to glorify him. We're not wandering in the dark, wondering how we can please and worship God. He has revealed himself to us in his word. So we must read it and study it, not in attempts to twist it according to our traditions and our tastes, but in submission to it, saying whatever it says, we believe and we will do, even when it costs us, even when it transforms us, even when it challenges everything in our culture, even when it challenges everything that's common to us in the church. We will read it, we will study it, we will obey it, understanding his word rightly and desiring his worship wholeheartedly. So we walk and surrender to him as king and lord and ruler and master because he's worthy. The scribes and the Pharisees refused to live for the glory of Christ. May the opposite be said of us. Let us refuse to live for anything else but the glory of Christ. And along those lines, in the midst of this chapter, yes, we see the condemnation of Christ upon sinners. 
but we also see the compassion of Christ for sinners. Verse 37, the way he longs for Jerusalem's salvation. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that in Luke's account of Jesus coming into the city, he saw these people and he wept over them. So, oh, even now, there are literally billions of people in various places in the world who are giving themselves to sincere religion that they genuinely believe they're honoring God or whatever gods they worship. But they are deceived. They're added to eternal damnation. Over a billion and a half Muslims in the world, over a billion Hindus, hundreds and hundreds of millions of Buddhists and animists, others who are under the condemnation of God at this moment. I saw them this last week, the Arundo, 10 million people, 99.9 something percent of whom are sincere dedicated Muslims, and most of them never even heard that there is a Savior under whose wings they can find mercy. They're there, they're here, they're men and women you work with, we live around, who need to hide under the shelter of Christ's mercy. So let's tell them, brothers and sisters. Let's tell them. Let's not spend our lives making money and having jobs and living comfortably and coasting it out until we get to heaven. Let's spend our lives and sacrifice everything we have making the good news of the wings of Christ's mercy known all over the world. Let us passionately proclaim the supremacy of Christ's glory in Birmingham and the ends of the earth. From the wealthiest of the wealthy to the poorest of the poor, to every tribe, tongue, and clan in Africa, to every people group on the planet, let's give our lives, let's give this church as God's people to passionately proclaiming the supremacy of Christ's glory. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you would like to download the free discussion questions that accompany today's sermon and every sermon, you can do that at our website, Radical.net. And while you're there, you can browse hundreds of more resources on similar topics as today's sermon, like battling sin, legalism, spiritual growth, the law, and the wrath of God. Radical.net is a resource built for you, the church, and so we hope you get great use out of it. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. Until next time, join us there at Radical.net.